So before I start tonight, I wanted to make a short announcement, which is primarily for the people from the Santa Cruz group. Um, many of you know Marjorie Holcomb, who sat this retreat, I think, last year, and um, sits regularly on Tuesdays. And you know that many people know that she's been quite seriously ill. And um, I just found out today that she's gone back up to the UC Med Center in San Francisco because the inflammation in her spine is worse. And so mm-hmm. she's going to be having some plasmapheresis, which is a thing that purifies blood. And so I thought it would be good for everybody to know about her. I think we'll put some kind of a card up here on the altar and um, please hold her in your hearts. And you know, there are times I feel like such a mother hen sometimes, you know. <laughs> so here's, here's one of my people who's suffering. It gets hard. Hmm. So tonight I'm going to talk about what I said I wasn't going to get to talk about because I didn't think I was giving the talk tonight. But um, Carla is home taking care of her cold and um, so here we are. And So I thought I would pick up the thread of that teaching that I mentioned last night and um, we'll walk around it again and a little more thoroughly. So the Buddha, um, when he taught, many, many times said that he had come to teach about suffering and the nature of suffering And he had come to teach about the end of suffering. Sometimes that gets a little tweaked and people who are coming to Buddhist practice say, you know, does this mean I'm going to have to suffer? As though somehow doing it makes you suffer more. Maybe at the end of a first day of a retreat. (laughs) You probably think the answer to that is yes. And I suppose in a sense it is. But... The, the really important piece is that he comes to teach the end of suffering. He comes to teach the way to freedom and to liberation. And, and you know, to the end of, of, all, of all wars, really. You know, inner wars and outer wars, whether we're um, talking about the geopolitical scene or your next-door neighbor or your partner or yourself. So here at Land of Medicine Buddha, you know, it's, it's a really wonderful place. It's amazing that it's so close to home sometimes. And, but it feels quite removed from the world. We're right at the edge of this astounding forest, the forest of Nicene Marks. And, you know, today I was particularly enjoying the, the ravens as they were having their various conversations. It's really great when we're not talking because then you get to listen to them talking. And it's really only the occasional car that's passing through or maybe a plane that goes by overhead and you think, oh yeah, you know, there's the outside world out there. 
And so we've come here, like we said last night, we've come seeking refuge, one way or another. That was true for everybody who's here. You've come seeking some kind of refuge. And you're really slowing down considerably. And you'll probably slow down even more as the days go by. And um, pretty much outside of your usual activities, other than the very basic things that you do to take care of the body. Um, But, you know, your computers and your email and your snail mail and your phone messages and your work and your family and your cats and your dogs, they're all out there. And you're just doing this very simple practice. And, you know, if I think back on the words that people said last night, you know, when you each offered your words, you know, openness and trust and release and honesty, and, I mean, they were just wonderful, wonderful words. And and my sense was everybody's come with some yearning for some kind of transformation in the heart and the mind. And that's not you know, being stopped and being attentive is not our usual mode of being. You know, our usual mode of being in these early years of the 21st century is um, what I once heard described as the hectic pace of fear. The hectic pace of fear. We just are going relentlessly. So my friend Diana Winston describes it. I've read this many times at retreats, but I think at least some of it is worth reading again. She says, I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk. My God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm running fast and furiously and I want it to stop. How can I keep track of the multitude of information from TV, newspaper dailies, weeklies, alternative journals, web, email, snail mail, commercial radio, public radio, what my friends say, posters, flyers, billboards, advertisements, magazines, books, bookstore windows, dreams. Here we go, restless, can't stop now, spinning, careening wildly out of control, faster now, faster, gotta go, make that date, gotta invent something new, gotta go, can't explain now, gotta check my website, over here, over there, where, no, it's not fun anymore, on to the next better, newer, happier, yes, this is it, got it, no, it's not quite it, wait, there must be more. (laughs) makes me tired to read (laughs) so probably your mind looked a little bit like that I would imagine today every now and then you know that because even though we've come here and we've kind of stopped the mind is of course still you know ready to go on to the next thing And, and we see just how hard it is to stop. It's really, really hard to do this very simple thing that we're doing. You know, I mean, did your mind stop for more than a few seconds <coughs> today? Or I suppose the other way to ask it is, how many times did you bring your mind back 
I don't suppose anybody's ever been masochistic enough to count, but it would probably be an interesting number. So if you remember Buddha Dasa, the teacher that I quoted last night, said there's nothing to do and there's nowhere to go and there's no one to be. So you come here and you try this, you know, doing nothing or not very much and not going very much of anywhere and not being your usual personality self. And it's rough. And often what happens when we stop is whatever it is that we haven't been looking at comes into our awareness. You might have noticed this already. So sometimes it's a place of fear or a place of grief or a place of anger or a place of loss or some kind of contraction. And so here you are, you thought you were coming to a nice peaceful retreat and your stuff is there. You know, Jack Cornfield used to say, you know, you, you think you've come to a retreat, but really you've come to the garbage dump. <laughs> <laughs> There's some truth to that. So, after the Buddha had his experience under the Bodhi tree, then um, he sat with it for quite a while, actually, considered whether he wanted to teach, and then he decided that he would, and, and he went to Sarnath, where he gave his first teaching. And um, it, it's sometimes called the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, the first turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And it's the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. So he says, stress, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, it's called in Pali, is inherent in our existence. This is how it is. And the word dukkha, actually, one of the things I've learned about it that I I really quite like is that it means out of round, like a wheel is out of round. So you know if a wheel is out of round, every time it goes around and it hits the flat place, it kind of goes kathunk. And it's like the shopping cart that always wants to go, you know, the other way. And, and so it's just how it is. You're not crazy when you think that your life has this kind of unsatisfactoriness or stress in it. It's, it's part of the deal. And we get caught, he goes on to say, because we want our lives to be a particular way. We want to a certain amount of money, or we want food, or we want a particular relationship, or we want to be enlightened, or whatever it is that we want to be. And sometimes we get attached. You know, it, we, it's, not that, it's not the wanting so much that's the problem. I mean, wanting to be enlightened, for example, is really fine. But if you get attached to being enlightened, and you're not... <clears throat> so you can see where this is going, the Buddha says, then you're going to suffer. It's going to be tough. You're going to hurt. You know, or if you get attached to a relationship being in a particular way. You know, it's not that you don't want your relationships to work out well. Of course, we all do. But when it has to be a particular way, then we suffer. And then the Buddha goes on to say, in the third truth, he says... 
there is a way out. There can be an end to suffering, which is often summed up in two words, which is let go. It's a nice quote from Jack, I think, somewhere, Jack Cornfield, saying that all of the 80,000 volumes of Buddhist teaching can be summed up in those two words. So, you know, we could stop now and go home, I guess. But, um, of course, it's not so easy. And so the Buddha says that um, he describes the Eightfold Path of wise understanding and wise intention, uh, being harmless in speech and action and choice of livelihood, and training the mind and heart with effort and mindfulness and concentration. So, and so these these teachings, these this eightfold path and and practicing it, it kind of cycles around. You know, we have we have a certain kind of suffering and and we get caught in it, and then we have some insight into it, and, and you know, maybe you change your life, or you become a little wiser in your action, or your, or your speech, or, um, or you deepen your training of your mind and your heart, and then there's a little less suffering, and then you see things a little more clearly, but then something else comes along, and around and around and around we go, you know. But often, and I've known some of you now a really long time, um, and so we know that the path, when we really follow it, we go deeper and deeper, and and there is insight, and things do change. I wouldn't be sitting up here, you know, after 20 years of teaching, if I didn't think that this was helpful, and if I hadn't seen with my own eyes that it really changes people's lives. So we know that that's true. So Buddha Dasa, those instructions about nothing to do and nowhere to go and no one to be are really, really useful. I think they're particularly useful, as I said last night, because they're so short. You know, you can carry them around <coughs> in your pocket kind of thing and pull them out whenever you need them. And, um, and they're very helpful in exploring <coughs> our suffering because so often we're getting caught in going somewhere and doing something, maybe today almost anything would have been something to do. And, and you know, that story that we need to be somebody, preferably somebody kind of important and maybe even more preferably somebody who's in charge or in control. But, you know, every time we do those things, we get caught in the doing and the going and the being somebody, then we also begin to see, if we're paying any attention at all, that this creates quite a considerable amount of suffering. So his instructions are really helpful as we learn to walk this path. So Kabir says, as we begin reflecting on nothing to do, he says, don't go outside your house to see flowers. My friend, don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body, there are flowers. One flower has a thousand petals. That will do for a place to sit. Sitting there, you will have a glimpse of beauty inside the body and out of it, before gardens and after gardens. So we're always going and doing. 
We're always going and doing. We're obsessed with doing, with acquisition, with jobs, with fixing, incessant fixing for most of us. And no rest, you know. I mean, I'll bet every one of you, if you're not a person who works a 50 or 60 hour work week, you know people who are. You know, that, that we've become a culture that's obsessed with um, working with long work days and long work weeks and things going faster and faster and faster and faster. You know, the freeways have to get wider and, and the, you know, Mission Street has to have more lanes and one thing and another. It just, it's endless so that we can somehow go faster, which of course never is fast enough. My husband is a computer scientist and, um, so, you know, he's in the thick of it, making things go faster. And um, he has worked for Xerox for many, many years. And one, some time ago, we were hanging out with Jack Cornfield, and Jack said, well, is there um, a point? Russell, Russell um, specializes in very high-speed, very good-quality printers. And so he said, is there a point at which the printer couldn't go any faster? And Russell thought for about it for a minute, and he said, yes, he said, the point at which the paper would catch fire. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a limit, but, you know, it's, we haven't gotten... I have, he's never come home and said, we did it. You know, we invented the one that was so fast that the paper caught fire. So they're still trying, you know. And then I guess when they get to that point, they'll probably figure out how to cool it, off. cool it off so the paper won't catch fire. You know. So here we're saying, you know, don't do. It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, sometimes I think when people must come in from the outside and see us at a Vipassana retreat, I mean, there's lots of stories of people seeing, you know, the mailman comes and people are walking back and forth. So, so, and he goes into the office and he says, oh, it's too bad, you know, it's so sad. <laughs> All those people. I mean, it looks very, very strange to be stopped this way. And we sit, we come in, because everybody's sitting, you know, not a word is being said, the bell rings, you go out. It's pretty amazing. And, but we're doing that so that you can really give your attention to your experience, you know? What exactly is this experience of breathing? What is it to stop and get really, really focused on just one thing instead of, you know, doing six or eight different things at once the way that we most of us do, you know. Vipassana is not about multitasking, you know. Vipassana (laughs) is about just one thing at a time. And the Buddha, you might remember, you know, the Buddha, after he um, left home, he went off and he trained with different spiritual teachers doing some very, very tough practices that you know, left him, some of them were, were um, ascetic practices that left him so thin. It said when you touched his stomach, you got his backbone, and if you touched his backbone, you got his stomach, and his skin was black, and he existed on one grain of rice a day, and those kinds of things. And 
And he did all of these practices. He got to be as good as his teachers. All of his teachers said, won't you now be my teacher? He then realized that he wasn't quite getting what he wanted. He wasn't seeing, you know, what could be the end of suffering. And then he remembered a childhood experience where he was sitting, it was in the spring, so right around this time of year, and he was sitting watching his father do the ritual spring plowing in the field. And it's a lovely image because probably every one of us as a child had an experience where you sat someplace and just watched. I can remember being on the back steps of the house we lived in in Maine, you know, and just sitting there kind of staring out into the yard as a child. Nothing. I think I had my doll, you know, tucked under my arm. And so we've had those kinds of experiences of just stopping and being present. And he realized that there was something about that kind of presence that he wanted to know more about. And that's what led him then to do the practices that he did and spend the night under the Bodhi tree and that led to his enlightenment. Nothing to do, there's nothing to do, doesn't mean that we're encouraging you to be lazy. You know, nothing to do actually um, it has much more to do with learning to be present. It's nothing to do in this very moment. It does not mean that you're not going to work for a compassionate change in the world. And actually, working for compassionate change in the world really requires that you have the ability to sit still and be present and do nothing in order to understand deeply and clearly what's happening in this moment. So often we can't stand it when something is hurting or suffering and we either turn away from it or we want to fix it really quickly. And often the fix isn't quite accurate because we haven't paid enough attention. So, you know, the world is so filled with suffering right now. It's always probably been filled with suffering, but now there's so many of us. It, it, it seems so very, very apparent. And um, so it's really, really important that we learn to rest in silence, to see clearly, to liberate the heart and the mind as much as possible. And then some kind of skillful response has a chance to arise on its own. And, you know, the suffering world needs people who will be the best nurses that we can possibly be for this planet. And that's going to require attention. And so you have to stop doing long enough to give your attention. So then he says there's nowhere to go. Not too long ago at a retreat, I wandered out and I looked on the bulletin board, you know, like the one in the dining room where we have the notes, and someone had put up this great sign that said, do not improve. (laughs) Do not improve. So I actually had the thought that maybe I should get one and put it up before the talk so you'd find it when you went out afterwards. So this is really pointing that, you know, the striving to get somewhere, you know, we're always 
trying <coughs> to get somewhere. And some of you, I'm sure you wouldn't admit it to any of us who are teaching, but some of you probably came with an agenda for this retreat. You, you sort of know you shouldn't, but we do. I've done it, you know. We all do it. And, you know, the minute you've got that agenda about somewhere to go on the retreat, you are toast. You are toast. It will create suffering. Because, you know, you're just reaching out and attached and not letting go and not letting the retreat be whatever kind of retreat it's going to be. So, you know, maybe you are hoping to be get through with a particular grief or you wanted to open your heart in some particular way or maybe you wanted to have diamond-like concentration and still the mind and every now and then somebody even thinks maybe they'll get enlightened. And, you know, if you have those kinds of things, you're going to suffer. You will. And so what we are seeking, what we seek, is right here. It's very, very ordinary. It's very ordinary. There are no advanced <coughs> secret teachings in this Buddhist world. You know, there's. it's not like at some point, you know, Richard or Bob or I will come and tap you on the shoulder and say, okay, now you can come to the advanced retreat and we will really give you the special teachings. You hear everything at every retreat. Pretty interesting, actually. And what happens is as we listen and work with the teachings, we go deeper and deeper and deeper. Just recently, I went, some of you may have been there, I think some of you were, um, to hear the Dalai Lama in San Francisco. And he did two days of teachings on some fairly stiff Tibetan you know, scholarly texts. And um, and I was so delighted because I've heard him teach about this particular Buddhist philosopher, Nagarjuna, more than once. And sometimes when he even just says the name, I kind of quake because I think, oh, but you know what? I'm beginning to understand what he's talking about. Just beginning, mind you. But it's as though it's the same thing. You know, you hear it over and over and over again, and then you begin to go, oh, oh, I understand it. And you understand it from your own experience. That's the important thing. So there are many, many mythic stories (coughs) that tell us this truth, that the treasure is right where you started. You know, sometimes it's sewn into the hem of the garment that you were wearing through all of the ordeals or it's buried in the garden behind the house where you started or there's one story that I particularly like about a man in Istanbul who um, had a dream with, of an old man with a pile of jewels at a, and this old man was at a very specific um, address, he was at 3 Stasinopolis Street in Cairo in Egypt So the man in Istanbul is a whole other country, right? And not at a time when he could just get on an airplane. So he journeyed and journeyed and traveled and finally made his way to Cairo and found the street and found the old man. And he said, I've come to claim my treasure. And the old man said, that's funny. He said, I had a dream 
that <laughs> under a bed in Istanbul that belonged to a man who looked just like you, there was a great treasure. So, you know, where was the treasure? Was it in Cairo? Was it in Istanbul? It's right there. But what also seems to be true in all of these stories is that the journeying is required. In that story, the man went back and there under the bed was the treasure, you know? So, but the journeying seems to be part of the deal. It's always part of the deal. And, and over and over again, wisdom teachings of many, many traditions say, look, look in your own yard, look in your own body, in your own heart, in your own mind. Going in, not out, is where it is that you will come to some understanding. Some of you who were at the Tuesday set know that I've been chewing on another one of these Zen teaching stories where a young monk comes to a teacher, to a senior monk, and he says, please teach me. And the senior monk says, have you eaten your soup? And the young monk says, yeah. And the senior monk says, well, wash your bowl. And that's the teaching. So, you know, that's the teaching. And, you know, we talk, you hear the word, you know, freedom is realized or the um, enlightenment is realized. And sometimes we sort of slide over the realized piece. And the realized piece isn't, isn't that you have to go anywhere to be this. It's not something that you arrive at. It's something that you make real in your own experience. It's not anywhere else. So, you know, while you're here, you can practice this. You know, you can be, you can practice, you can work. Can I be contented with what is? You know, what is? Let go of hoping for a better moment, you know, and maybe I'll be contented, you know, at the next sitting, but certainly not in this one. But you know, this sitting, which with your crazed mind, that's how it is in this moment. And so you get a chance to see what the crazed mind is like, or, or maybe you know the food isn't quite what you wanted, or, but it is what it is, or your roommate, or your bed, or you didn't bring enough warm things, or you didn't bring enough cool things, or, or whatever, and. <clears throat> And it's a chance to really practice where is the freedom in this particular moment just as it is. No fixing. No fixing. Just as it is. So you get to give up frequently. Give up all the time. You know, It's great to give up. It's just the way it is. So really, here is what we're looking at, right here. My, my grandson, when he was younger, used to sometimes come tearing into the room, you know, a little four-year-old kid, and he'd put his hands on his hips, and he'd say, what's going on in here? <laughs> you know? And I think of that sometimes when I'm sitting, because that's the question. What's going on in here? You, know, you can ask yourself, what's going on in here? So our time here is really an exploration of the geography of suffering and liberation. And you begin to know, oh, if 
you know, if I if I go over there, if I start wanting, I'm going to suffer. And and you can actually discover you can sometimes pull the mind back a little and, and just not go there. And and so we learn where you know that just staying right here actually is better. All of the teachers, everything that you will hear during these five days, all of the teachings are instructions for the investigation of your own hearts and minds. They're really for you to use to investigate your own experience. How is this true? What do I know about it? Where can I find it in my own being? Those are the kinds of questions that that you want, you know, what does it mean for me not to go anywhere, not to do anything? What would that feel like? Oh, huh. And then you and you experiment with it and you investigate. Where where is the suffering? You know, we talked last night about investigating your own suffering. What is true for you about greed and hatred and delusion? And what is true for you about freedom. Where is freedom? You know, when I used to sit with Jack a lot, and some of you I know have, Jack Cornfield, he often at the end of a retreat would have people do this wonderful exercise where they would reflect on some very difficult situation in their lives. You know, your boss, your partner, your kid, whatever it is, and your difficult neighbor. And then he would have you imagine that, you know, there's a knock at your door or at your gate and it's the Buddha and or Guan Yin or the Blessed Mother or whatever enlightened figure of your choice, you know. And so he would suggest that in this little exercise that the, the Buddha or Guan Yin would offer to take on your body and you could wait on the sidelines and, and watch what they do. So the Buddha goes in and is nose to nose with your best beloved, except the Buddha looks like you, or with your neighbor or whatever. And and there's this interaction. And over and over and over again, of course, you know what people would report. They would say, oh, he knew what to say. He did it really differently from the way I did it. Or she, she did it very differently from the way. And in the end, you know, you get to trade bodies back and the Buddha goes off and you're you again. But you know what that's pointing toward? It's saying that we all have that wisdom deep inside ourselves. We really do. And part of what we're doing here is trying to find ways to access it. You know. There's a Zen poet who says this very body is the body of the Buddha this very land is the lotus land, you know. So this very, this very body is the body of the Buddha, and this very land is the is the lotus land, the land of the Buddha. So then we get to the part about there's no one to be, and you know, being somebody, being who you are is important. And you all know, if I, we went around the room last night, right, you all said your names and you knew where you were from and all of those kinds of things and you probably could have said a great deal more about yourselves if we'd offered you the time. 
And it's important. You need to know that stuff. That's that's. We're not saying that um, somehow you should um, not have any ego or any boundaries or any of those kinds of things. And we all have lots and lots of stories about ourselves, and we all have our histories. And probably, you know, this room, people of a certain age, and we've been around the block a few times, and we've all worked pretty hard on ourselves. Probably the collective hours of therapy in this room are (laughs) considerable. We won't add them up. (laughs) And so we've been doing this for a while. So to go back to this grandson of mine, you know, seven years ago in a few weeks, um, he arrived. And, you know, like all babies, he was just this little lump, this little boy lump. And um, he did what most babies do. You know, he ate and he slept and slept a lot, actually, in the first days. So there really wasn't very much to him, right? But then gradually, gradually, over these seven years, of course, he has acquired quite an interesting personality, feisty little dude and um, he's got all kinds of quirks and he's got things he likes and he's got things he doesn't like and, um, and now he has you know, quite a substantial little personality of his own and he's very identifiable and he's very much with us and so, you know, we've all done that, except most of us have a lot more years. And we come to a retreat like this, completely laden down with um, that history. So here's a poem about someone coming to a retreat. She says, When I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself staggering under a trunk crammed with humiliations bottled like urine samples (laughs) nail kegs of anger carbons of abusive letters chemistry quizzes with F's even the horse I never had and the two casseroles left over from the church potluck no one remarked that I had brought too much (laughs) Hmm. do you ever get tired of your personality (laughs) I guess the answer must be yes but you know you you see your old neurosis coming around one more time and there you are doing it again with your sister or your aunt or your partner. I mean, holiday times, if you want to really take a good look at your personality, holiday times are really wonderful. I recently, just recently, last week, was on the East Coast um, visiting with my father and I had a little bit of time with my sister and we've been having a bit of a bumpy time and I found myself very anxious about being with her I've also been reflecting in recent weeks about some of my own difficult side the place of me that gets grumpy and cranky 
And as I found myself being anxious about her, I suddenly went, oh, oh, that's what people don't like in me, right? And that place where you begin to see something about your own personality, maybe sometimes you see it in, in your siblings, often we do, because we, uh, we come out of the same, the same cooking pot, you know? And these personalities of ours, I mean, do I want to be like my sister? No way, you know? Am I like my sister? Yeah, sometimes, you know? And do you want to be like your sisters or your brothers? No. Are you? Yeah, every one of us. And so, so we have these, these things that sometimes feel a little like it's just clunking along, right? I mean, my Mary Orness just keeps being Mary Orr, even no matter what I do or try to do about it. But then you have this teaching about, well, no one to be. That also sounds a little scary, and sometimes people do get scared. Um, and sometimes even in retreats there's a point where people will have nightmares about dying or being murdered because the, the psyche begins to feel like, wait a minute, what's going on here, you know? Maybe I'm going to just go poof and be gone. There's a, there's a book, been out for a long time, called Letters to Tofu Roshi, and it's, it's a book of letters from hypotheticals Zen students to their teacher. And, and one of them, um, my favorite, um, the woman says, you know, dear Tofu Roshi, I've practiced for many, many years, and it's been so helpful. I've figured out what to do about my children in their schools, and I've made shopping lists, and I've decided what kind of a car to buy next. And There's just been so much that's been very, very helpful about my hours on the cushion. But recently, it's been getting very quiet. What should I do? <laughs> you know? So there's that place sometimes when it does begin to get quiet and there's a little anxiety that comes up. But you know, if you think about it, you know, the Buddha stayed quite recognizable to all of his friends and his family and seems like Jesus did and Muhammad and all the great enlightened beings continued to be who they were despite the fact that they had these powerful experiences. And this core teaching is about there isn't any solid and separate shell. So the Buddha does say that trying to figure out what exactly is happening, you know, what does this mean? Is there a self? Is there not a self? Those are kind of asking the wrong questions and um, and in the end, it'll make you kind of crazy, actually. But what he does say that's very, very helpful is that clinging to any identification with anything whatsoever will cause suffering. So the moment we get identified, the moment we begin to create solid self, this is me then you are in trouble. It will inevitably lead to suffering. And so, if I and me and mine are central, then there will be suffering. 
So again, I really want to underline, you do need, in time and space, the conventional sense of self. You need to know who you are, you need to know where you begin and where you end, you need to know how to create boundaries, all of those things that many of you have worked on a lot are very, very important. But when this me business takes center stage, that's the problem. So here at the retreat, you know, we get very intimate with ourselves. Somebody used that word today in an interview that I was having. You know, you you begin to see so much about yourself. And one of the first things you see, of course, is how wiggly and crazy the mind is. That's actually an important insight. So anybody who saw that today, hooray. You know, that's an insight. Chalk it up. And you, you've gotten somewhere, even in this practice where you're not going anywhere. <laughs> but, you know, you be, it's very interesting because... You, you begin to see, even here on the retreat, where you don't have to be anybody, like we talked about, there's this little way that you have a kind of a self that begins to shape up. You know, like, huh, I've got a really nice shawl. My shawl is a little nicer than everybody else's. Or, I walked really, really slowly, and all those people saw me walking really slowly. Or, you sit extra still, and you think... That's pretty good. Good job. You know, I made it through very, very still. And, or maybe you ask a really good question that keeps one of us entertained for quite a while, giving you the answer up here. Or, or maybe if it's not that kind of thing, you get kind of obsessed with the, the me that's suffering. You know, my back, my knees, my hips, will I ever walk again? Those kinds of questions that, that come up in the, Retreat, or, or maybe you get you you get kind of identified with a particular form of practice. You know, the last retreat I sat at Spirit Rock, this teacher gave the instructions this way, and I really liked those instructions. And what Mary Grace is doing, I don't like that. I like those instructions. I don't like these instructions, and I don't do the kind of practice that she's telling us to do. And pretty soon you have a little self going around. You know, the kind of practice that you do. Or some people come in and they don't like that we sit for 40 minutes, 45 minutes. How come we're sitting for 45 minutes? I never sit 45 minutes. <laughs> um, so any place where that kind of resistance comes up, that's actually a clue to where you're doing a little bit of shelfing. And in fact, any place where you say, at any time, I am a person who and then you fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. That is a very key phrase on where you're identified with something, whatever it is that you are a person who. And we put so much energy into maintaining these personalities, these stories. It's like we're little walking movie sets. You know, that go around, and so that I make sure you get my Mary Ornus every time you see me, and you make sure that I see who it is that you are. But you know, here, no one is watching. <laughs> no one is watching. You know, and even if you think that they're watching, I just went through this myself, trust me, at the retreat at Spirit Rock, you know, and I was sure 
that the whole I I was making coffee every morning, and you know they don't serve coffee at Spare Rod, and so I had my cone and then you know. And I was okay for the first cup, but when I went for the second cup, I was sure that half the dining room was sitting there going, oh my God, a spirit rock teacher is having two cups of coffee. How can she possibly? And you know, it was a little piece of selfing that was happening, and probably no one, no, they're all looking at their plate, <laughs> eating their food, watching their breath, doing their own thing, having their retreat. They're not paying attention to my retreat. I'm not paying attention. I, I am paying attention to your retreat, actually, because I'm the teacher. But, you know, not watching you moment to moment, and certainly your fellow students are not watching you there in their retreat. So you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You can let go of it. The personality... No matter how much you spiff it up with education and practice and therapy, and the personality is not what wakes up. That is not what wakes up. It is not what is realized. It is temporary. It's on loan. You've got it for the duration. One of these days, it will be over. And, you know, it's very interesting. I know a number of you are also, like I am, watching elderly parents who are coming to the end of their lives. My father is 91 now. And um, and he's still very much here, a very healthy 91 in many ways, but I can see that he's beginning to dissipate. He's going away, bit by bit, that personality. And I know that others of you in this room have seen that. It will happen. You know, my mother, who was a diehard smoker all of her 86 years, forgot to smoke in the last week or so of her life. It was, it was, she didn't have withdrawal. It was just gone. It was a whole piece of her that just disappeared. It was utterly astounding. So you can use this retreat to let go a little bit, to let go of that kind of obsessive personality thing, even just a little bit. No one knows really who you are here, even though a number of us do know each other. But, but you know, we really don't know each other terribly well. That's not why we're here. We're not interested in your career and your relationship and your history and your education and your practice. Just We're just doing this practice. I taught a retreat once with a yoga teacher of mine, and at one point in the retreat she said, let go of anything extra. And I thought, oh, that's a great instruction. And then I realized that everything extra was me. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't have to be anyone for a few days. It's really great. You don't have to go anywhere very much. You have very, very little to do. Very, very little to do. You can just enter this really blessed space and set aside the burdens of doings and goings and personality. And just notice when you do that, in the moments when you can do that, when there's just breath and sound and sunshine, just notice what happens when you put those burdens down for a few moments and pay attention. And, you know, there may be a moment when there's no greed and no hatred and no delusion There's just awakeness. And that is then 
a moment of freedom. So one final poem from Galway Canal. This is the whole teaching in 11 words. (laughs) Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. So let's breathe for just a moment. Stay just as you are. You don't need to move into any particular position. So thank you very much for listening. Um, We have about a little more than half an hour for walking. Um, Someone asked about walking inside. There may be a few of you who would like to do that. Um, The only place, the two places that I know of are the dining room and the gompa if it's not being used. Um, So, um, but there's also plenty of well-lit space outside and places along the decks and um, under the eaves. So um, there may be places that are not quite inside but also feel comfortable. So enjoy your walking. We'll have a sitting at 9 o'clock and probably a little bit of chanting as well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.